What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4X Plus Podcast. And today, I have a good friend of mine, Professor Anthony Davies, who's an economist, one of the smartest people that I know, that I've ever talked to. He's been on by himself twice, and now for a fourth time all together with his partner in crime, James Harrigan. But today, it's him by himself. We talk about economics. We talk about who's paying for this giant tax bill that's coming through. We talk about AOC. We talk about politics in general. We also determine who he thinks is going to be the next president. And you're going to be shocked on who he chooses. So stay tuned for that at the end. If you could like this video, subscribe to the channel, and hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time that my face comes to your screen, which is every Friday at least, I'd appreciate that. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast with economist and professor Anthony Davies. I'll see you next time. Peace out. What's up, guys? Today's episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. They're the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer. This guy, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the Lawnmower 4.0. It's got a flashlight. So join over 2 million men worldwide, just like me, that trust Manscaped and get an exclusive offer just for you. You're gonna get 20% off plus worldwide free shipping. Use the code EXPLICIT20 at manscaped.com. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast. I'm Corey, and today we have, for a second time by himself and a fourth time total, Anthony Davies. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. And if you can give people kind of a refresher of who you are and you know or your background and stuff like that. Yeah, Corey, thanks for having me on. I'm Anthony Davies. I'm Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University and the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. Um, I'm a, clearly an academic, but I've spent time in industry as well. I was CFO for corporation, founded several uh, dot-com companies, and um, written a book, Cooperation and Coercion, which I encourage everyone to go out and buy, and, um, and co-host the podcast, Words and Numbers. Absolutely. And they're not, you're not on fee anymore, right? You guys went on your own. own uh... That's right. Yes, we're independent now. Awesome. Get away from a uh, big brother, I guess. Um, so, okay, first off, let's talk about these vaccine mandates for jobs, right? Or for employees. Um, I, if you've, if anyone has watched the news lately, there's been a ton of, uh, I mean, they went from being heroes, the nurses and doctors and people to now being kind of villains, I guess you would say. I know a lot of my nurse friends that don't want to get the vaccine are being threatened of, you know, they're going to fire them. Um two things. One, one part is um, the vaccine mandates for, I think it's like 50 employees or more or something like that for jobs. Um, right. What's your thought on that? And then also um, do you think it's, you know, your opinion and also kind of like, if you have any factual data as far as like the, 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 the nurses and stuff like that, basically getting canned because they don't want to get, you know, vaccinated, which is a personal choice at that point. Yeah, and I don't know anything, I can't say anything along those lines other than to warn people that, remember, when you see something in the media, almost always it's something that's uncommon. So if you're seeing people getting fired because not they're not vaccinated, 
my knee-jerk reaction is that that's probably uncommon. That's what puts it in the news in the first place. But but having said that, I, I don't know, I don't have the data on any of that. I'll give you a couple thoughts, though, on the whole vaccine mandate. The first that comes to mind is the question, and, and I, I say this without prejudice one way or the other about the vaccine, but simply a question, is that constitutional? That the federal government could, in effect, deputize uh, employers everywhere, telling them that they're now responsible for making sure that their employees are uh, are vaccinated. And I, I don't know, from a strict reading reading of the Constitution, clearly this isn't one of the powers listed in Article 1, Section 8, but we ditched Article 1, Section 8 about 70 years ago. So, so I, I don't know. Um, I will say this, and as much as much of a, a free marketer as I am, as much as I believe in people's um, individual freedom, I have to remind people that that a free market is not anarchic. It's not you can do whatever you want. It's you can do whatever you want, provided you aren't imposing harm on anyone else. That is, even in a free market environment, there is a, a good and prescribed um, role for government to play and that is to prevent people from harming each other and it doesn't just mean to prevent people from beating on each other it means to prevent businesses from defrauding their customers to prevent people from polluting the environment all this sort of thing and if if you accept that and what i've said isn't controversial you ask pretty much any free market economist what's the role of government and they'll tell you exactly what i just told you but here's where the whole situation gets dicey the being infected and walking around in public and potentially infecting other people looks exactly from an economist's perspective like pollution it's no different than a factory belching out chemicals into the atmosphere and you inhale it and now you get sick or whatever it is so so to here now i've floated this argument before with some people and They've come back with a strange counter argument, what I perceive to be strange. And their counter argument is no, being infectious and pollution are not the same thing because often you don't know whether you're infectious. And that strikes me as, as completely ancillary to the question. The question is whether you're imposing a harm on someone else. Now, you may not realize that you're doing it, but that doesn't change the nature of what's going on. So I'm kind of left in this space that as much as I dislike the government stepping in and saying, all right, you have to get vaccinated, I have to admit that infection looks almost identical to pollution. And if I'm prepared to say that there's a good and proper role for government in preventing companies from polluting, I think I also have to say that there's a good and proper role for government to insist that people be vaccinated. Right. And is this like a, an ethics thing or is this an actual something that the government can, you know, a card they can actually pull without kind of any crazy um, ramifications. Yeah, well, I'm not making, I'm not making an ethical argument here. I'm making an economic arg argument Okay. that the, the infection, uh, the technical term we'd use is a negative externality. The infection represents a negative externality in the exact same way that pollution is a, is a negative externality. It's imposing a cost on someone else. That's I literally have never thought of it like that, but you saying that makes total sense. 
if that makes sense. like as far as like from an economic standpoint like the government cannot allow businesses even in a free market to do any type of damage whether like you said it's actual pollution or it's this type of thing which that makes total sense to me yeah now and there's all sorts of important footnotes to this things like well how do we know the vaccine works and what are the long-term ramifications and what if i just decide to stay in my house and mm -hmm. i understand all of that but i would argue those those things are are more questions of how would you apply this rule rather than questions of is this rule really a thing right right yeah that makes total sense wow that's crazy you literally kind of just blew my mind because i've always looked at it i'm also not an economist um so that helps, but I've never looked at it as like, cause I, I look at it as like, like you said earlier, kind of like news threads and just, just emotion versus fact. And like, wow, like, okay, maybe the government is looking out for us as consumers in a certain way. When you look at it at that, if that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Now I wouldn't go so far as to say <laughs> that, right. <laughs> but 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 I I would I would simply stop at the line of saying look it it seems that this is a a good and proper role for government to do this now sure. how our government goes about doing it and what's motivations are that's a different matter entirely true 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 yeah okay all right I track that then okay that makes sense um so I, I think I saw a video the other day I don't know if it's new it has to be new because it was COVID related from you talking about uh, filling up football fields I think it was uh, no it was in Yankee Stadium. Um, like that's how many, I think it was, that's how many people would need. I don't even, dude, I don't even remember what it. Right. You're talking about the 3d video. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 I don't know if Learn Liberty did thing. that or what? Right. Yeah. Now, uh, now students, uh, not Learn Liberty. It's under Learn Liberty name. It's uh, students for Liberty. Right. Uh, did that. Um, yeah. And what we were trying to do there and, and that video has kind of become overcome by events, not to mm -hmm. say that there's anything wrong in there, but we now have better handle on the numbers than we did right. at the time. Um, the question there was, what's it costing us to, to prevent the spread of COVID? And it's interesting you ask this question because just this afternoon I was updating figures on, on my analysis of that. And there's two things we got to look at here. One is, how many lives did the lockdown save? Hmm. And that's an important question, but also an important question. What did the lockdown cost us? And in terms of, you know, chronic, not just the chronic unemployment and, and businesses going bankrupt, but also, you know, increases in, in um, drug abuse and domestic violence and suicides, all of this stuff. So what was the benefit? What was the cost? Right. And I think it's going to be, several years before we have a a solid handle on the answer to that but what i can say is that the numbers are close enough that it is not entirely clear that the lockdown was a good idea hmm. in, in on the whole yes it had good parts to it and it had some good outcomes but it's not entirely clear that it was worth the cost right as far as like uh death toll and like all the things that you just described as far as yeah, those things rising yeah, in terms of all those things, the big thing there, of course, is is what it what it did to the economy, and I have to be I have to tread very cautiously here because people will say people will say things like, "Well, you can't equate lives to dollars," and that's what I'm doing, and therefore I'm evil, and we mm -hmm. should ignore all the economists, yeah. right? Um, but but I have to say, well, hang on a second, because what we're really asking here is 
we took a certain amount of resources and we devoted those resources to fighting COVID in the form of lockdown. Would those resources have saved more lives if we had put them towards something else? And if the answer there is yes, then the economist would say that that was not a good use of our resources, in, you know, the, the lockdown and all of this. And I could give you a, a um, example of this, and people don't like this example, and I'll tell you why they don't like it after I've given it to you. But we, we lost since the start of COVID, so we're talking 18 months roughly, um, 700,000, give or take, Americans died of COVID. Now, over a typical 12 month, not 18 month, but 12 month period, around 650,000 Americans die of cancer. And they die every single year. It's not a one off thing, right? And, and people will, will look at that and they'll say things to me like, well, you can't compare cancer to COVID because COVID's an infectious disease, cancer isn't. Okay, but that argument cuts both ways. Because Given that COVID is an infectious disease, there's the opportunity to develop herd, herd immunity to it. Right. There's no opportunity to develop herd immunity to cancer. Right. And, and if you just look at the numbers, I mean, we're losing 650,000 people a year to cancer, year in, year out, every single year. Now, take what COVID cost us, and I don't know what COVID cost us, but I can look at Congressional Budget Office that has estimated this, and they put the estimate somewhere around give or take 15 trillion dollars yeah 15 what? trillion yeah that's, that's like that's half the, the budget or a deficit isn't it uh yeah 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 it's a gargantuan sum wait and so even if break that down hold on 15 trillion dollars for what like all, all the resources oh, yeah now it's an opportunity cost so oh, the way you would think of it is this is this had we not had this lockdown over the course of the next decade, we would be cumulative, cumulatively $15 trillion better off than we will be, given that we did do the lockdown. God. And, and again, these numbers, you know, we don't know a lot at the moment. And even if the CBO is off by a factor of two, still. it's not 15 trillion, it's 7 trillion, right? <laughs> it's still gargantuan, right? So, so I come back to my, to my thinking as an economist about the cost, the benefit of the lockdown. And I say, okay, suppose we had taken that $15 trillion, whatever it is, and instead of locking down the economy, we invested that same amount of resources into finding a cure for cancer. We could have expanded the NIH and the NCI, National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health. We could have expanded their budgets 300-fold. Oh, for that same amount of money. Now for a 300 fold increase in their budgets, they would have found a cure for cancer within the next year, right? Right, right. And, and that would have saved how many lives? Not 700,000 that we saved with lockdown, but 650,000 times the number of years we can expect to wait until we otherwise get a cure for cancer. Right. And so I look at that as an economist and say, wait a minute, this was a, this was a misuse of resources. Right. That's a great way to put it, misuse of resources, because to, to your point, like I think about that all the time when I see um, it, when the pandemic first hit. I mean, I've had a ton of friends um, that, you know, one of my buddies came from he's a Marine, he's a sniper and a Marine. So he's seen some shit, comes home, had an opioid problem, 
heroin ends up he gets over he ods with fentanyl um mm. like to me personally i think that alone you know heroin and, and overdoses and i mean suicides and um you know heart disease all these things cancers they take a huge toll of people like you said every year not just a one-off i've always wondered if the government like that could just take like you're saying even if it's not 15 let's just say 10 7 trillion dollars and put it towards anything why wouldn't you put it towards something that you know like you said you could probably get a, a cure within one to five years and then all of that would be eradicated like right. I, I just don't understand is it because here my tinfoil hat on is it's like well, cancer is big business. You know, these heart diseases are big businesses. A lot of money is made every year for people to get sick, overpopulation. There's all these things that people can talk about. But I've always wondered that what you just said is like, why aren't these resources being used for things that could actually save hundreds of thousands of people's lives on a yearly basis? Yeah. And I think I don't know the answer to this, but but I can I can mitigate your your view a little bit and say, look, the fact is, although we don't have a cure for cancer, the technology in, in improving people's qualities of life, life and even length of life who are diagnosed with cancer has, has grown by leaps and bounds over the past 30 years. When right. I was a kid, cancer was a death sentence. Now it's much less so, not in every case, of course, but it's much less so today. Right. And so we are, we are making progress here. But as with anything, the question comes down to... Um, whatever resources you put to toward this thing are going to be resources you can't put toward something else. And you got to make that call. And so too with COVID. I think the politicians made the call in the wrong direction, but they made that same kind of call. Right. What would you have, if you were king of America, um, what would you, what would you have allocated those resources to? Yeah. So, I don't know the answer to that, but but let me back us up about 18 months and tell you what I would have done differently at the outset of COVID. And at the outset of COVID, we we suffered, all of us, from a serious problem, and that was lack of information. Mm. The data that we were getting that appeared to indicate that COVID had a, a huge mortality rate, a hundred times what we actually what it actually has. What led to that was a bias in our observations. That is, we only had a few tests, uh, test kits. And what happened? The people who we tested were people who were sick enough to come to a hospital. Mm -hmm. And consequently, we got this impression that COVID was far more deadly. Not to say it's not deadly, but we got the impression it was far, far more deadly than it was. Right. What I would have done from day one would have been to invest some a significant amount of resources and doing randomized testing. Let's find out what we're dealing with here. How dangerous is this thing? And I think if we had done that, a lot of decisions that we made in April, May, June about locking down and closing businesses and whatnot would have gone differently. Right. No, that makes total sense. I went, it's so funny. I talked to uh, Dr. Rebecca Katz from Georgetown, who's like I mentioned before, is a virologist, like super smart. She, I talked to her in February literally right before like shit hit the fan mm -hmm. and she's like calling things like i told james this like she was like it it might not be it might be normal to be wearing masks in the next year or two and i'm like get the fuck out of here you're crazy um right. of course she's was right um and then but she, she one thing she told me that was interesting was because i asked her I said are there any cases in the dc, the DC area because i was like freaking out and she's like no but all the tests that the cdc had sent out 
were flawed at that time. Right. Which yeah. I was like, wait, what? The CDC had flawed testing, which is to your point, they had misinformation getting back to them, the people that were actually doing the research. Therefore, they're just basically taking it to like the extreme cases, like you're saying, the people that are probably older, dying in the hospital because they're just in a worse situation than someone my age, um, if that makes sense. And they didn't have all right. of that data. So I'm assuming that had to play a part in that. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly it did. You know, we we knew we didn't know enough to be able to make these calls correctly. And notice something interesting, because that absence of information had an interesting interaction with politicians incentives, right? Because the politicians incentive, of course, is, you know, he doesn't want to get in trouble from the voters. But notice something going back to a beginning of April 2020, when we're talking about having lockdowns or not having lockdowns. And a politician is would be thinking to himself, look, I can make a mistake in one of two directions. I can either lock down when I shouldn't or fail to lock down when I should. Mm -hmm. And the implication of being wrong in those two directions is very different. If I fail to lock down when I should, it's immediately apparent that I've made a mistake because we've got body counts all over the place right. and people are going to be calling for my head. Conversely, if I lock down when I shouldn't, it's much harder to tell that I've made an error because people will say, well, the lockdown wasn't necessary because we had very few deaths to which I can always respond. Yeah, but imagine how many we'd have if I hadn't locked down. Right. And so I, as the politician, have a natural incentive to err on the side of locking down, even if it might be unnecessary. Right. So take that, combine it with this fact that, that we because of lack of information, we think that COVID is far more dangerous than it is. And it's a recipe for disaster. That makes so much sense. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. That's it's. And do you think that um, the lack of, not the lack of, but do you think that the, the way that Trump handled the lockdown was his demise and basically was the main thing that got him out? Obviously the January 6th thing, that was not a good look. Um, but do you think yeah. that played a big part? I don't, I don't know what, to what extent it played a part in, in his losing the election, but I do think, and I, I'm a strong critic of President Trump, but I think he handled COVID correctly, whether it was, whether it was deliberate or not, I cannot say, but I think he handled it correctly in, in as follows. He left it largely to the state governors. And so we had a bunch of state responses to COVID rather than a unified federal response. Right. And the benefit to the individual state responses is that the individual states could react given the context that they were in. So what was the right policy for New York was not the right policy for Wisconsin. And it wasn't the right policy again for Texas. By letting the governors handle these things, we, we got maximum flexibility, right? Better policies designed for better circumstances. If we had had the federal government step in as many people wanted it to, right. we would have ended up with a one size fits no one policy. Really? Yeah, because- Well, and, and I, give you, I give you for a simple example, well, you could pick pretty much any federal policy, but I give <laughs> you for a simple example, minimum wage, right? So we go to the federal government, we say, well, we need a one size fits all minimum wage. Okay, $15 an hour, that's not enough to live on in New York City. And it's 
it's a ransom in Wisconsin, right? right? It doesn't fit either circumstance well. Right. That makes total sense. And that's kind of what I wondered in during the lockdowns. I'm like, because, you know, of course, when Fauci was was on was on his kick, um, it was like we need to have like a just a two week or four and it ended up going to four weeks and then six weeks and then longer on the lockdowns. But you're right. It was it also it kind of it kind of gave the president and those other politicians kind of like a safeguard because like it's the state can do what they want. That way, if anything does happen, that's bad. Like in New York or anything, it's going to fall on Cuomo. It's not really going to fall directly on Trump right. or whoever's in office. Right. 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 Exactly. They, they got some political cover. Right. And, and again, you know, I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt and think that they thought this through and realized this was the best answer. I don't know. It's possible that happened. It's possible that they were just looking for a little political cover, cover your ass, and this happened to fit the bill. I right. don't know. Right? Yeah. No, that that makes that that. It's, I'm so glad. Like that's why I love talking to you because like those are legit questions. I know I had, and a lot of people that are probably going to watch and listen had because we we're just sitting back waiting. I was literally waiting for the federal government to be like, "Listen, we're shutting shit down for a month. You can't go outside." like period and then that way this thing will get kicked because that's what Fauci was basically saying he's like we have to have if we and everyone still says this We're like listen if we would have shut down all together for six weeks this would be eradicated no one knows that that's impossible right. to, yeah. to determine so no one knows that it, and pe people have a tendency to look at um you know we like to look at Sweden and Norway during these things and the thing that Americans forget is that the European countries are the size of states yes it's like Pennsylvania so, yes. <laughs> right. Sweden can have a unified policy. That's like Pennsylvania having right. a unified policy. Right. right. But the United States is a very different matter. Right. I think a lot of people forget how big the United States is compared yeah. when they come because I get that all the time. I get the, you know, like when we when I post stuff about like gun control, when we talk about gun control, they're like, they're like, yeah, well, you know, England and then, you know, Sweden. I'm like, guys, like America has like 360 million people in it. Like that's yeah. not even close to how many people have in it. So it's much easier to do those things. Um, and it's just, it's completely different. It's like, it's not even fair to compare, um, especially when you're some, like someone like you that's talking facts and data and like actual, like, you know, factual information. That's not just like, oh, I saw this on the news and this is how I feel. You know what I mean? That's why I like talking mm -hmm. to you because you are like very like just, you know your shit, you know, and it's like, it, and when you talk, because I don't have a life, Corey. All I do is read this stuff. <laughs> well, that helps me out because I'm an idiot. And I love, I love talking to you because it's, it's, it's like it, it makes when you break it down like that. Like earlier, when you're talking about the the government coming in and helping, technically helping the not polluting us as customers, like that makes total sense. I don't think of it like that, and I know a lot of people as Americans are so politicized and they think one way or the other. And God forbid you think neutral or you think you're middle ground. It's you're the fucking devil. Um, but man, that's God, that really makes so much sense to me, honestly. Like, thank you for clearing that up as far as like trying to dumb it down, you know, to us layman terms. Oh, no, listen, you you say dumb it down. This is about this is as high levels I get on this topic. <laughs> I, I have to remind your listeners, I am not an epidemiologist. You're not. I right? am a data analyst, so I can talk about data and the things that went wrong with the data, but I'm not an epidemiologist. No, no, it's very clear. You're not out there solving Ebola stuff and all that stuff. You're just, but you have the data though. You have, you have what data is available because it's not all right. there, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. That's right. Okay, so um man i was gonna ask you about uh 
do, do you know yeah, you probably wouldn't know any any of like the um i remember when trump was in office they were trying to say that the covid vaccine was or uh, the covid 19 was from a lab oh wuhan yeah yeah the, the wuhan and that's an, yeah it, i don't know anything about that other right. than i'm interested that it, i'm interested that that came out initially people saying this is this was created in a lab and um and people shouted down yeah. those who it's said conspiracy. this was created in a lab right and you know facebook would knock off their you know ban them and all this nonsense yep. and then it comes out that maybe it was <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah. and i think and, and again not being an epidemiologist i can't say anything to that but um when it comes to the comes to questions of economics and human behavior i think there's an important lesson here and the lesson is that we need to be extremely careful it's so easy when someone says something you disagree with to say well that's false news and that you know we we should lock down people shouldn't be repeating that thing well the fact is it might be right it might well be wrong mm. but it might be right and the antidote to to false information is not quieting the person silencing the person it's letting more people speak let more information come out right and and if there's confusion I would say the confusion is due to the fact that it's not entirely clear what the right answer is. When yep. it does become clear what the right answer is, there'll be much less confusion and you'll start to hear one group of voices predominantly saying something. Yep. That's that's exactly what it is. It's the we talked about this on gun control is like the terminology of two people can't have a conversation about the same thing if they're talking in in smaller terms about things that if you know what i'm saying like you said like the assault rifle ban it's like listen when they're not trying to take all your guns but you're also using the wrong term so like right right clearing that kind of stuff but and i first heard that that um the whole uh bats not the uh the in the lab thing from i think it's brett weinstein on rogan's podcast mm -hmm. he was talking about the way that the the virus um you know, mutated so quickly. He was like, it basically was able to jump from the host into a human and be as like viral as it was. And he was like, that doesn't happen so quickly unless if that, 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 uh, you know, the, that strain is injected with those attributes. It takes years for that stuff to happen. Um, mm -hmm. And, and everyone's like, oh, this guy's fucking crazy. And then like you said, when during the Trump administration, it was like tinfoil hat people talking about that right. was made in the Wuhan lab. And then as soon as Biden takes office, he literally goes and investigates and has a team of people investigate this. And I still, I haven't heard anything from it. I don't know what happened if they've concluded on that or not, but I thought that was fascinating that one administration, it was like conspiracy, you know, not even six months later, it's like a full blown investigation because it might be true. I've right. never seen that yeah. before. Um, yeah. But anyway, all right, we'll we'll talk we'll, we'll talk about some uh, some numbers and stuff. That way, it's like the virus stuff. I know that's not your your main gig, but um, as far as unemployment, this this really kind of confuses me. Um, I think there was a lot of um, kind of not confusion, but kind of like inconsistencies, whether it was state or federal, and a lot of this stuff, whether it was um, unemployment benefits and stuff, just being like here, take. $600 plus whatever the normal benefits are a month. Some people are making a thousand dollars a week sitting on their ass at home. I wouldn't want to go to work either. You know, I worked the entire pandemic. We were deemed essential. I never had to stop working, you know, fortunately. Um, you know, I talked to a, a DC housing person, but before I moved and they were like, you know, Corey, like you would have to pay it back, but like, you don't have to pay your rent right now. Cause DC, DC is still under like these crazy oh, the moratorium. 
Really? Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. And I was like, I was like, well, I'm not going to not pay my rent because I don't want to be in a financial situation 12 months from now when all the shit has to resurface. Yeah. But I just thought there was a lot of miscommunication and a lot of like, uh, just half answers when it came from federal government or even state, because I, I didn't know what I couldn't do at certain places. I didn't know what I could do and others. Um, and that goes with the unemployment too. Like how, how, fiscally responsible was it to allow people to get this extra, you know, income in on top of also stopping the ability to have to even pay your bills, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So there, there's all kinds of problems here. And I think what, <laughs> what we've got, what we've got in the end is like a cascade failure. Yes. We're, we're trying to fix problems by introducing other problems and, in, you know, the, the whole chain of events begins with the lockdown, with the government saying, okay, you know, you businesses can't be open. Now, you know, what are you going to do there? Because this is not an economic phenomenon. It's not that the customers have said, I don't want to buy here anymore. It's the government has stepped in and, and said you can't. And so it seems reasonable that the government, that the onus should be on the government to make people whole here. Mm -hmm. So it does the the expanded unemployment benefits. And I think I think that was handled badly because on the one hand, you want, you know, you don't want people hurting on top of, you know, the business is going bankrupt. And so we give the expanded unemployment benefits. I don't I'm sure the numbers vary by state. I've done the calculations for Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, with the expanded federal benefits. Um, unless you were earning over $15 an hour, there's no point in working. Right. You're actually better off not. And, and so inadvertently, the federal government gave people a tremendous incentive not to work. Right. And so you get the, not, you know, you get the, you know, the, the large unemployment, but importantly, we're seeing the echoes of this now, you know, the unemployment rates back down around five and a half percent, give or take, which is still kind of high, but it's not the 14 it was back in April, 2020. But we're seeing the effects because it's hard to get things right you go to the grocery store and they're out of things now it's random sometimes it's one thing they're out of and sometimes it's something else um i tried to get some siding put on my house and the guy says oh yeah you, you can't get siding probably for another year because you know they weren't manufacturing it and now they are again wow and and all of this goes points to the unemployment because when we think of unemployment we think of it from the perspective of the worker, that the worker's not getting a paycheck. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely correct. But now think of unemployment from the perspective of the economy. That worker is a resource that isn't producing, mm. which means we're going to have fewer goods and services. And that's what we're seeing now. These sporadic shortages of things are the goods and services we don't have because people weren't working. So so I, I think this is, it's un- how should I say? I want to say unremarkable. It's predictable what happened. Now, a better way to handle this. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time. I'm one of the first people to use the Lawnmower 4.0 for Manscaped. And let me tell you, the craftsmanship on this goddamn thing is insane. It will chip away at all that down there. Trust me. I'm talking from personal experience. I use the, the Lawnmower get a little uh little, little trimmy trim trim and then i follow up with the ball deodorant let me tell you 
If you like to go on hikes, if you like to just go outside and it's sweaty or it's hot out, Swamp Pass is non-existent. I could not go anywhere without the ball deodorant. I travel everywhere with it. It is a lifesaver, trust me. Manscaped engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and a grooming experience you'll never forget. The fourth generation trimmer also features a ceramic blade to reduce the risk of accidents. And thanks to their advanced skin safe technology, I feel way more comfortable shaving my boys. The upgraded trimmer also includes an on and off switch that can engage a travel lock. It also gives you the ability to turn on and off the 4000K LED light so you can get a more precise shave. The Lawnmower 4.0 even allows you to cut through that hedge with more guard lengths with sizes one through four. Oh yeah, hey, did I mention um, wireless charging? That's fucking crazy. The new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which allows the battery to last way longer than it used to. Man, listen up. If you've been using the same nut trimmer on your face, you've been doing it all wrong. I don't know about you, but I don't want to end up with pubes in my mouth. It's time to get your own ball hair and body trimmer with Manscaped and make me time the best time. And trust me, you'll enhance your confidence if you got some nice smooth boys down there. Get 20% off plus for shipping when you use the code EXPLICIT20 at manscaped.com. Trust me, your balls will thank you. Was not to make this unemployment benefits, but rather just start cutting checks to people. Like, you know, they did early on, you get the COVID check or whatever it is. Do it on a regular basis. Do it instead of the expanded benefits. And the story here is, we're going to cut you this check, and if you can go out and find a job, that's great. We'll still cut you the check. Now, all of a sudden, people's incentives change from, you know, I'm going to stay home because I can make more money not working, right. to I'm going to take this opportunity and work really hard because not only am I going to get a paycheck, but I'm going to be getting this check from the government. And we would have had the exact opposite. We now have hyper productivity going on instead of, you know, dealing with shortages. Jesus Christ, dude. That makes, once again, that's like... That seems so obvious, so obvious, because people are just going to be lazy and not work. And 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 as as us, uh, the the companies that I, the company I work for, I mean, turnaround is like, or not turnaround, whatever. It's like we're having so yeah, turnover, right? Yeah, yeah turnover. Yeah. yeah, so many people in and out just because like oh, I can make more money doing nothing at home. Uh, and I know right. a lot of states and stuff like that. I know DeSantis in Florida, I think Abbott in Texas. They basically listen, we're not taking any more federal funds for the unemployment. Um, mm -hmm. to kind of mitigate that and get people back to work. But that idea is, is it's smart and it's, it seems obvious because you're right. Like I know me personally, I would say, well, I'm going to get 12, 15, 2000 a month, whatever it is. Plus if I go out and get a 40 hour a week job, that could put that away. Yeah. Like that, that, right. that, yeah. that seems yeah. so much better. I think didn't, didn't like Sweden. Like there's a couple of like uh, Norwegian countries or something like that, that did that where they were paying their uh, citizens every month for the check. I yeah, I, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> now, now un understand there are problems with this. You know, you, of course, you're going to have a huge tax bill at the end. Somebody's got to pay for this, but we're going to have a huge tax bill with the unemployment as well, right. right? Right. So no, no solution is perfect, but I think that solution would have been better than the solution we did employ. Right. That, that I totally agree with you. And then the, um, th let's talk about those payments because First of all, I didn't get any of them. Uh, don't know why. I don't know if I just, I made 
too much money or I didn't know that. But, um, mm-hmm. and then what happened is last year at them, when I did my taxes, they said, Hey, listen, we're going to give you this now instead. And they let me take it out of my taxes. So I, if I, let's say I owed $4,000 in taxes, I didn't know $4,000 in taxes because the COVID basically ate it, which I was like, that's so interesting. Like my, my fiance, she got two of the three, didn't get the last one. And then that got me thinking like, okay, this is like you said, this, now we're on 18 months at this point. Some people still aren't back to work. Even go back to 12 months, remove the other six. It was a much worse situation back in January, February of this year. Um, I mean, 1200 bucks, 1400 bucks. That is to me like nothing. I mean, my, my when I lived in DC, my rent was almost triple that. And I'm like, right. I would need yeah. to get this three times just to pay my rent. Um, yeah. Like, cause you said each state's different each, that was more of like a blanket and effect that definitely didn't work. And I remember you saying when they put out that first $2 trillion bill, the amount of money that came to American citizens from that bill was like basically ancillary to what was given to other countries and other big things. Right. Why didn't they just say, Hey, of this 2 trillion, we're going to give every American 5,000 a month, or we're going to, you know what I mean? Like a good chunk of change to get them through each month on top of making us stay home and not being able to work. Yeah. And I think one of the things we've got to keep in mind here is that politicians have incentives <laughs> that they follow <laughs> just, just like everybody else does. And, you know, their incentive is, is to get elected and to accumulate power and favors that they need. Uh, so, so they have an incentive to make this whole matter complicated, not because there's value in the complexity, but because to get the things they want requires that the thing not be straightforward. Mm-hmm. If it was a straightforward matter of, okay, everybody's going to get a check in this amount and the IRS that's already handling such things is going to handle it. There's nothing, there's, there's no infrastructure, there's no back, you know, backroom dealings of I'll give you this, instead you give me that. There's no promises I, I as a politician can make to anybody. It's, it's all cut and dried. Cut and dried solutions are great for the taxpayer, but they're not great for politicians. Right. That makes sense. Does that kind of go back to what, I remember you told me one time that um, the government is supposed to be inefficient and be slow, which is why you had a kind of a issue with Andrew Yang as he was trying to make the government efficient. Would this been a good situation where if the government was efficient, we would have been better off? Yeah, yeah. And I think when we say the government was meant to be inefficient, um, it's meant in terms of, of inefficiency of decision making. But once it's made a decision, from that point on, it would be nice if it were efficient. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you yeah. know? But yeah. I, I give you an example of this. Um, we, we have spent, it's kind of related to the unemployment, we have spent in this country $24 trillion mm-hmm. in fighting poverty, in the war, war on poverty. And in that $24 trillion has resulted in, give or take, about 100 government programs that currently exist. Ow. Each of which, each of which is directed at, you know, some aspect of poverty. And so we built this huge infrastructure. It's cost us $24 trillion over the course of, you know, since 1967. Now, if, if instead of building this huge infrastructure, political infrastructure and all the bureaucracy that handles welfare, if instead we had simply cut checks to poor people, we could have cut a check to every poor person in this country for $10,000, not every family, every person, $10,000 a year, 
every year from 1967 to the present. Jesus. It would have cost us the same amount of money. And what would we have gotten for that? We would have had, since 1967, a 0% poverty rate. Instead, we have constant 13% poverty rate because why this $24 trillion is only on the side going to help the poor. Mm -hmm. Largely, it's going to supporting over 100 different federal programs and the bureaucracies and the politicians involved. Right. Yeah. No, that's funny you bring that up because I was watching a podcast the other day or a couple of weeks ago, and they talked about, which I had no idea of, the homeless situation, specifically in New York and California. And I think it was... Um, Governor, um, the not Governor, the Mayor um, Bellasio. I, I think it was his wife, like ninety or nine hundred million dollars, basically, in their budget. Because I think she went off and tried to like do homeless stuff or whatever and help the homeless. Mm -hmm. Just is unaccounted for. Unaccounted for. Unaccounted. <laughs> I for. thought you were going to say that was the budget. No, no. that's the unaccounted. Part. Unaccounted oh for. I think it was close wow. to over a billion dollars, and it's like it's a business. It seemed like when yeah. they were like, and these were all like actual news articles. It wasn't like some bullshit conspiracy theory. It was like, this was a dot. And then nothing happened to her, no investigation, nothing. And then they talked about in California, they had these houses for homeless people that they were building these like kind of like tiny homes in this community. And it was uh, 50 to your point of spending money on nonsense Instead of just giving the handing the money to the person, they were buying these or making these houses, these tiny houses that literally they like contra other contractors were chiming in. They were like, we could build that for like a thousand bucks. Each one was like seventy-five to ten thousand dollars a pop. So they were basically overpaying using this inflated budget that they were given and overpaying contractors and stuff like that to get this stuff done. It ended up costing to make 50, 50 tiny houses over five million dollars yep which yep. is yep fucking yep. crazy like yeah give five million dollars you can give that to divvy that up to a hundred thousand homeless people you know what i mean like right it just blew my mind so i i want to go back to something you said early on in our conversation um and you said uh you know some people will say well the pharmaceutical companies i think we we're talking about cancer at the time mm -hmm. the 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 pharmaceutical companies have an incentive not to release drugs because you know they get more money from us and i want to point out a difference between that scenario and the scenario we're talking about right now because it, it is the case in a free market environment so take away issues of pharmaceutical companies co-opting the government right just straight up it's a market relationship the pharmaceutical company has an incentive to give us the drugs we want and we need because why if they don't, we will stop giving them our money. Right. We have the ability to walk away. But now contrast that with, with the, a bureaucracy that's meant to uh, deal with the homeless, for example, or poverty. That bureaucracy has the opposite incentive. It has the incentive for the problem to persist because so long as the problem persists, the bureaucracy can continue to, to, to demand more and more tax dollars. This bullshit. <laughs> and, and so you've, you've got this very interesting um, dynamic that the consumer's ability to walk away in the private sector forces the company to give the consumer what he wants. The inability to walk away in the public sector actually causes the bureaucracy to, to actively not give us what we want. Right. Wow. So it's basically the opposite of what should happen, I would say. I would say. It, it is, and, and it's all perfectly predictable. It's human beings following the incentives we put in front of them.
The, God, the problem is the incentives become screwy when you prevent people from walking away. Right. Damn. That. See, to me, like, I think that's just like total fraud, honestly. Like, to, mm. I mean, because if you're not like, what's the point of having these programs? So I didn't even know 100 active programs for homelessness. That is crazy. That alone I can't even imagine the budget that they need to pay employees to keep that infrastructure. And I know they're probably paid decent because um, they're more than likely government, you know, yeah, uh, government workers right. on average earn more than significantly more than the private sector workers. Right. Yeah. So it's like, I'm back. Okay. Um, total waste of resources. Do you think that would ever happen where the government would be like, you know what, this $5 million budget, here you go. Here you go. Skid row, figure it out. <laughs> um, yeah, it. I would be surprised if that happened. You get a little bit of it happening with the government giving the federal government giving block grants to states, mm. it kind of saying, "Okay, do what you want with it." It comes with some strings, but it's, but it's a little bit of that. But again, the incentives. I'm not saying that kind of thing couldn't happen, but it it runs counter to the incentives of the people involved. The incentives of the people involved are to attach strings to this to control it because right. it brings power and influence to them right makes sense i uh also found the article de blasio and co-mayor wife have wasted 1.8 billion dollars of taxpayer money with 900 million dollars of that budget unaccounted for yeah. <laughs> for for that's astounding one eight put 1.8 billion just for homelessness so, in new york so 50 percent of the budget is unaccounted <laughs> it's for. gone and have <laughs> you been to new york right, <laughs> uh, right. homeless people everywhere not, you know, there's not, you know, there's not resources there. I mean, I, I've, I've donated to like in DC going can drives and stuff like that. It's like, you know, the, I don't know. It's just not, I feel like with that amount of budget for stuff like that, the places could be nicer, the resources, the more food, more opportunity for these people. A lot of these people are ex-military, PTSD, have a lot of mental illness. Uh, there's just none of that. She spent an eye-popping $900 million dollars. And nobody you know, seems to have a clue on what is what it says. And it's worth doing the math here because I bet you, and I haven't done the math, but I bet you, I would not be, let me say it this way. I would not be surprised to find that for that same amount of money, we could have simply rented hotel rooms. That's what they said and on, on the problem podcast. solved. That's exactly yeah. what the, that's, ex I think it was an economist actually that, that's exactly what he said. He said, you've could have spent a fraction of this budget got them all like nice hotels, $500 a yeah. night, if you want. And they would have been sitting up there like Kings warm meals and a safe environment. That's exactly yep. what the fuck he said. That's crazy. Yep. That is just, God, it's such bullshit, man. $773 million <laughs> down a rat hole. And it's if like, you're mad, you're understanding. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good quote. And, and it's, 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 it's scary, man, because it's like, where is this money going? Is it lying in your pockets? Is it like what you said, paying favors? Is it, hey, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. You know, I'll get this bill passed so X can happen. It's just, God, man, it really pisses me off. Sorry. It, All right. It does. And, and let me say something in defense of government here. Um, <laughs> I, I would not say that what we're seeing is due to anything evil or malicious or it's not due to stupidity but rather it's simply people acting in in accordance with the incentives that exist and the incentives in government are to are to give you the outcome that we just described of you know wasting 1.8 billion dollars and so what what that should tell us is when we see a problem our first reaction should not be 
to turn to the government and say, hey, do something about this because you're going to get all the problems we're talking about. The first reaction should be, hang on, what possibly is the government doing to actually cause this problem? And if the government isn't doing something to cause this problem, what could the government do to encourage the private sector to solve the problem? Right. Yeah. And that kind of leads me into kind of what I wanted to just touch on briefly, because we talked about a lot of it last time we spoke of healthcare, right? That is a, I think uh, I, I was blown away when you told me that I didn't know that our jobs were tied to healthcare because of the, the, you know, the limit that yeah, you can have caps. on wage yeah, gaps yeah. and stuff back in the day. And um, that got me thinking, I'm like, well, you know, listen, I, we pay, I pay f- f- over a thousand, like 1200 bucks a month on healthcare for me and my fiance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our, our job basically just adds it to our paycheck every week. Um, and we, we go out on our own and get a private plan and pay for it. And it's like crazy. Cause, and I have pre-existing heart condition. So like, I think I told you just before is when Obamacare came out, I was able to get insurance and now it's Biden care or whatever, but can you kind of just make me understand a little bit more and people listening that kind of were like, you know, people because a lot of people in the comments of the video i posted were saying well free i i'm still paying out the ass for health insurance now and still getting taxed even if it is half of canada's tax rate so it's kind of like you know me personally now that i'm paying 12 to 1500 bucks a month in in that i might not like think of it as that much if i'm my taxes go up a little bit and it comes out of my paycheck or or whatever you know the, the the end result would be so can you kind of clear that up and kind of like, cause, cause that's a private sector thing, right? They gave it to the private sector and now you can go buy private health insurance from a free market, right? You, yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the free market because health healthcare is one of the most controlled unfree markets really? in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Tremendous amount of government intervention, both in the delivery of healthcare and in health insurance. Hmm. And um, I was looking prior to the Affordable Care Act, so this would have been right before Obamacare came in, I was looking at costs of health insurance across states. And there was marked differences and kind of in the direction you would expect. Montana was really low and Massachusetts was really high. And if you if you looked across the states at the average price of healthcare, and by marked differences, I mean like like threefold difference. Wow. You know, it's 1,000 bucks one, where, one place and 3,000 the next. Um, if you if you look at those differences, a pattern emerged, and the pattern was states with higher insurance premiums were also states that had a lot of um, in, insurance. What is the right word? Mandate, mandatory. A lot of insurance mandates. For example, they would say things like, um, "If you're going to sell insurance in Pennsylvania, your insurance must cover." Um, glasses or it must cover dental work or whatever it is. Some states had a lot of that stuff. Other states had just a little bit. And you can look at that and you say, well, that's probably a good thing. I want my dental or I want my insurance to cover dental care. Well, you might, but I might not. I might have really good teeth and I don't want to spend the extra money on it. But by mandating it, all of a sudden, I don't have the option not to get the dental. I've got to pay more. And you send a signal to specialists everywhere, go, go lobby your state representative and get your specialty on the list of mandates. And before you know it, 
insurance sold in Pennsylvania has got to cover, you know, 30 different things. Right. And of course, that that elevates the, the cost of the insurance. The analogy I give, and it's, it's, it, it applies very well, is um, imagine, imagine if um, we did the same thing with cars and uh, we said, OK, every car sold in Pennsylvania has to have leather seats. And then, you know, the, the guys who manufactured the uh, the the top of the line stereos go and lobby and they say, well, every car sold in Pennsylvania should also have one of these top of the line stereos. Oh, it should have a sunroof as well. And all, all of this stuff, the GPS navigation mm -hmm. before you know it, the only kind of car you can buy is going to be a top of the line model. And so too with with insurance when you look across the states what you found was states that did this ended up forcing everybody to to buy top of the line insurance which meant that of course the insurance is going to be expensive right that's it's funny you say that because i lived in north carolina i lived in dc i lived in maryland I lived in pennsylvania now i live in colorado uh every single state vastly different for health insurance i mean mm. dc right right one of the highest I've ever paid. North Carolina was actually pretty high. I don't know why out here in Colorado now that, I mean, it was only three months ago that we moved here. Uh, I can't, I can switch because I, um, I moved. So it's like a life event. Um, it's like, now we're going to pay like five to 600 total, which is almost mm -hmm. over half of what I was paying three months ago in DC. And right. you're right. A lot of the stuff in DC was like, well, I'm a little different. I'm not going to use myself as an example because I my pre-existing heart condition, like I had to have basically like the fucking best plan, like sure, the, sure. the platinum, just because it's like, well, we're not going to cover your yearly checkups at Children's Hospital for cardiology because it's not normal. <laughs> so right. my fiance, on the other hand, I could get her like a basic plan and it was still like four or $500 because it had dental, vision, uh, you know, uh, specialties, uh, dermatology, like all these other doctors that just like you said, which I didn't even think about, that's probably how they got on that list. I mean, it was vast of the amount of coverage that I got. And then to your point, I'm like, I gotta, I don't need half of this shit. You know, I may right. in the future, but not to where I'm paying an extra $100, $200 a month. Right, right, exactly. But you're being forced to, to buy that. One of the things that I think is interesting, in, and I, I don't blame Obama for this. He's the one that said it. But the fact is, if you put any other president in there, he would have said something similar to the same effect. But he said, look, when the Affordable Care Act is passed, uh, the average family's cost of health care is going to drop 20%. This is what he said. Mm. And you can look at the numbers and the cost of health care was rising at a health insurance was rising almost linear at a steady pace prior to the Affordable Care Act. And after the Affordable Care Act, it continues to rise at exactly the same pace that it rose before. So it did nothing. So in the end, the Affordable Care Act hasn't done anything in terms of cost. Right. Right. It just has maybe made it easier for certain other things like my case in, in case where like yeah. if I normally get a job, they're like. I'm not going to insure you for two years well, until you work here right. for two years, basically, is how it used to be. It, it has had that beneficial effect. It's solved, uh, in, in a lot of cases, the pre-existing condition problem. But, you know, as you say, the pre-existing condition problem was the result of government interference in the first place. Right, right, right. That's fucking crazy, man. And, and um, the, you mentioned something earlier about uh, cars. Have you noticed when you're driving by dealerships, there's like no cars? Right. I, yes. I, I'm, I, it's like, blow, it blows my mind. I talked to one of our, our clients the other day and who's from Detroit. 
And he's like, listen, he's like, he's got the big three there, you know, the, the all those. And he's like, they're not working because the governor still shut it down. So they're, they're not building cars. And I'm like, that makes so much sense. And I, and then I got like a visual timeline of like, okay, I go down to the BMW or the Ford or Chevy dealership. There's like five cars on the lot when they would normally have like 200 on the lot. Is that going to be like a long-term, just like to your point of like the siding, like you can't get siding for a year. I know wood for building houses was like astronomical at some right. at certain points. Like is this is all going up, right? The, yeah. It, is it going to yeah. pop, you know, like. No, I, but I, I think to answer your question, it's going to be a while. Now what a while means, mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe I would be surprised if it's less than a year. I would be equally surprised if it's more than three. So somewhere in that range, because what we did is we shut down the supply chain. And it's not something that's not a light switch. You could turn it off and turn it back on again, <laughs> right. right? It takes time to, to gear things back up again. And that's what we're experiencing. And, you know, all these things are interrelated. So the car industry itself has got to gear back up, but it relies on computer chips and they've got to gear back up. So it's got to wait for that. And the computer chips are waiting for, well, they need trucks to move things back and forth, but that's got to gear back up. Same as the cars do. Right. And you can see that everything's all, we're, we're trying to bootstrap everything back together. So I would imagine that we're going to be looking at it's at random things just kind of missing. I tried to buy a bike the other day. The guy said, Oh, it's gonna be a, a year before you can get a bike. A bicycle? So why a bike? Who knows? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. It's just to be random stuff like this, I think for you know, the next one to three years until things get back to back together. But but I, I would remind your listeners what you are seeing is the economic effects of unemployment. Unemployment from the economy's perspective is workers, resources not producing. And when resources don't produce, we don't get stuff. Right, that makes total sense. It kind of mirrors what you, we talked about before, like what's your degree worth? It's kind of like like workers in the workforce are our value and, and they, they need to produce for things to, yeah. to, to get going. So right. that's that makes so much sense. And also the, um, what was I going to say? I'm in, so I'm in marketing, right? That's like my real job. Um, and I've noticed it's been for, well, for us, for me, it's like not as expensive as other, other companies that I've seen competitors and stuff like that. They're paying out the ass for marketing. And I'm telling uh, my clients, I'm like, listen, like, you know, this is going up, right? Everything's going up as far as, you know, housing is, I mean, we tried to, we were going to buy a house in Colorado. We were a cash offer. Every single person put in a hundred thousand dollars over what we were asking. Wow. It, it was wow. That's amazing. I mean, a house, my mom just sold her house and bought a house all in the same day. She's, she put her house in the market two days later, it sold. And then she went and got bought a house like same day. And it's just mm -hmm. like fat. It, it, it reminds me a lot of 2007, 2008, um, when things are just happening so quickly, there's not so much as far as like government. Uh, I think there was like a lot of like, like loans that were going out that were just kind of like, there's no way these people are going to pay it back. Right. I don't think there's that happening, but we're obviously seeing inflation, right? Yeah, we, we are. Um, inflation on an annualized basis. And what, what I mean by that is we get inflation on, we have inflation, for example, in September, and it's a certain percentage, but th the number I could quote to you, I think is like 0.1% doesn't mean anything to people. So you say it on an annualized basis An annualized basis means if you had that inflation in September continuously for 12 months, this is what you'd get, right? So annualized inflation going back to February of this year, 
has been in the range of 5% to 11%. So averaging, I think, around 8 What's typical in this country, at least has been typical for the past few decades, is 3 Oh. So our, our inflation rate since February has been two and a half to three times what it is normally. I think, I don't see that stopping in the near term and it may not stop in the long term. And, and what the reason I hedge on this is because there are two factors at work here. One is that we're producing less than we were producing before. And producing less than you're producing before will give you inflation, but that's a short-term phenomenon. People come back to work and supply lines get ginned up and things start working well. Um, the longer-term factor here is the Federal Reserve printing gobs of money that will also give you inflation. And, and that is only going to get worse as time goes on because the because politicians have discovered that voters are tolerant of debt and deficits, and they're not tolerant of cuts to programs they like, mm -hmm. nor are they tolerant of increased taxes. Right. And so the only way to to deliver things that politicians want to deliver is to print money. Is that does this kind of play into I talked to James about this is the collapse of the financial in, uh, system of America, not tomorrow, not in 10 years, but eventually, do all of these things, these two and three and four trillion dollar bills that they're just like slinging like hot dogs on the side of the street. Um, you know, it, it seems like there's not a lot of thought into the future versus like trying to get like quick fixes. And I think America right. and the world is really used to that at this point, which is scary. Yeah. And this is an interesting thing. You know, you and I have talked a couple of times about comparisons of private and public sector. And one of the things that people say it's a problem about, uh, the profit incentive is that companies are only look at the short run, which is actually incorrect. But this is one of the things people say. Companies are interested in short run profits. Forgetting the fact that politicians have probably shorter time horizons than companies do. Mm -hmm. Their time horizon is to the next election. So whatever I can do to get through for the next 18 months until I'm reelected again mm -hmm. is what I'm going to do. And in this instance, you, you get the problems you're describing of we're not getting we're not getting fiscal prudence. We're getting money printing. And again, it's an incentive because if you get two politicians, one of whom is willing to to to, you know, start printing money or encourage the Fed to print money. And the other one is is talking about fiscal prudence. Well, the guy talking about fiscal prudence isn't going to get elected. The other right. guy is right. And so they all have incentive to, to do this. I don't think we're looking at a financial collapse. I think we are looking at the inevitable um, financial insolvency of the federal government. The federal government's going to reach a point here in some point in the next decade when it becomes obvious to everybody it simply can't continue to to pay for the things that it says <laughs> it wants to pay for. And, and, and so that's going to be an adjustment, right? Um, painful for some, not painful for others. But we'll come through it. It will take, I'd guess, a decade to come through it. And we come out the other side. And I think what we have out the other side is a much smaller federal government. <laughs> we get something like we were talking about when we were talking about COVID. We get a governmental system that's principally at the state level. 
So your state might have a great plan for Social Security that is different than my state, and that's okay. We have different plans because this is done at the state level, same as we right. did COVID response at the state level. And the federal government ends up being the way it was designed to be. Basically, it adjudicates disputes amongst the states and, and protects us from the outside world. Hmm. Damn, that's crazy. So go from huge government overreaching to small government. Yeah, um, maybe say it a little bit differently. We'll go from hu huge overreaching federal government to small federal government. Okay. Yeah. Some of the states, some of the states are going to respond by hitting the gas pedal, right? California is going to grow huge. New right? York. New York's going to want to grow huge. But here's the important thing. People have the ability to walk away. Mm -hmm. If you don't like what's happening in California, you can, as people are currently doing, move to Texas, move yep. to Nevada. Right. And that puts a natural break on California. California has got to stop and rethink what it's doing because it can't keep bleeding population. Right. Federal government doesn't have that problem. True. They don't have those, those uh, kind of, they don't have to answer for that kind of stuff because they don't have people no. living in the federal government. Wow. Yeah. Well, so it, you can't, you can't walk away unless you're really wealthy. Right. You can't walk away from the United States. You're stuck here. Right. <laughs> oh man. Um, what was I going to say? The uh, you, I, I, I rewatched our uh, first time we talked, and you mentioned Parabon. Parabon, uh, Parabon, right? Parabon okay. computation. Computation. Mm -hmm. So that has evolved uh, to a TV show. I don't know if you saw it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, CC Moore, the genealogist. It's so funny because when we were watching it, they said the name, the guy in Virginia, I think it's in Virginia. Um, yep. And I was like, wait, Parabon, that sounds so familiar. And I was like, hold on, YouTube. I YouTubed it. And then I went to, and I was like, holy shit. Like Anthony talked about this company and talked about the Golden State Killer. Have, uh, and side note, me and my fiance were upset. My mom, we were obsessed with the show. The technology is crazy. How can you just basically print out like a picture of DNA and you can kind of like backtrack like who a killer was from like 40 right. years ago. Like, can, can we talk? Do you know enough about that to talk about it? I know enough to make some noise. I, okay, was, yeah. I was chief financial <laughs> officer at Parabon uh, back in the day, but that was prior to them doing what they're currently doing. I remember you saying that. Yes. But um, have you like kind of touched back? Like, have you like kind of like kept oh, yeah, you know, yeah. fingers it, in the, the ball? The CEO is a good friend of mine. Yeah. Wow. It's, can you describe the technology or no? You don't really know it. Well, <clears throat> what they do basically is they will collect um, DNA from a crime scene and they have, they have algorithms that have to run on a supercomputer that will take this DNA and build, as you say, uh, a picture called a morphology of the DNA. And uh, apparently it's good. It's not spot on, but it's good enough that they've been able to solve a number of cold case crimes uh, using this thing. In fact, in one case, I forget which one it was, uh, the, they put the picture on the news and the guy called the police and said, yeah, that's me, figuring there's no way he'd go about his life now because his picture is out there. Right. That's, I think that's the Golden State Killer. The guy, the is that older, the Golden State Killer? The old, yeah. older yeah. man, yeah, who... Yeah. Who went? I mean, he was a cop too. He was actually a cop. He was a oh, police officer. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. aware of that. And, yeah. and that's kind of like how he 
got away with a lot of stuff because he knew stuff. And also this happened back in like the 60s, 70s um, and 80s that he was killing these people. He killed like, mm-hmm. like I think like 12 or 13 people, um, yeah. which is fascinating. But anyway, the show, I think it, it, the genetic detective, I just looked it up. Genetic uh, detective. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it was so funny because I'm like, dude, I, and then when we talked about it, I watch our clip and I'm like, I don't even, because at the time the show wasn't around. So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's cool. <laughs> and then, you know, a year later, I'm like obsessed with the show, but I thought that yeah, was Yeah, it's really weird. My, so weird. my buddy, my buddy, Steve Armantrout, their CEO mm-hmm. has an IMDB page now. Right. This is the weirdest thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause he's on like TV and shit. Right. Yeah, he's yeah, actually yeah. in the show. I think I've seen that yeah, she goes to Parabon and like talks to him and they basically work these cases together. It's fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Technology, man. DNA is like insane. It's, it's a really cool, it's a really cool technology. When I was there, we weren't doing, we were not doing this morphology, but we were doing something somewhat related uh, called protein folding. And with protein folding, you have a string of proteins and you can mathematically predict with this string of proteins, if I let go of it, it will fold, literally fold down into some shape. Hmm. And depending on the shape, it can be used for a variety of, of medical things. So the, the game was, you know, you've got this sequence of proteins. What's, what, what's its function? What will it do? So you crush the thing down and then you can predict what uh, what sorts of things that, that this would do but it's a supercomputing problem right who thinks of this shit right people <laughs> who are smarter than me <laughs> yeah. like that just like confuses the hell like even even it's funny when you watch the show and she does like because they do these really cool like infographs of like the, right. the the timelines and i'm like my head's like literally like I'm like, I have a migraine because I'm like, this is fucking crazy. And then they go and find the guy. They get a cigarette butt from this thing, person that they think it is. And then it matches up to it. It's just incredible. Well, one, of the, one of the interesting things I think they're doing now, I don't know what, what application it has, but I think it's cool, is getting DNA from people who are long dead, you know, historical figures. Oh. And they, you know, existed before photography. And then making pictures of them. Yeah. That's cool as shit. I've seen a lot of, uh, have you seen like, I've seen like these Harry, like Harry Tubman, George Washington, uh, Thomas Jefferson. They're like, they're, they're famous photos, but then they're like digitized and they're 3D and they can move. Is that kind of like, that's weird. That's weird. It's super weird. Scary as fuck. Do do you know if they're putting Harry Tubman on the $20 bill? I don't know. You know, I keep hearing that rumor, but I don't know. Would that change anything like economically? No. No. <laughs> no, Thomas Jefferson, right? Is the is uh, that the twenty? Jeff is Jefferson? No, twenty. Yeah, Jackson. Jackson. Yeah, 20. that's right. Yeah. Good old Jackson. Um, all right, so let's see here. Who do you think is going to be? I asked James this. Who do you think is going to be the next president? The next president. <clears throat> I don't know the answer to that, but Obviously. what I think is fascinating are the is the list of contenders. Um. There's lots of talk about Trump coming back, right? Um, and given the given this the slate of potential candidates on the Republican side, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, of course, Biden would go for a second term, and what is interesting about that is that neither one of those candidates is top shelf. In fact, I don't even think they're middle shelf, and and we've reached this weird place in our politics where we it's almost as if the system weeds out the good guys the guys who really would do a great job they don't show up 
And 100%. I don't know, I don't know whether it's because of, of the what we put them through, you know, Trump has no shame. So we could say, you know, the media can say whatever they say about him, he's not going to care. Right. But somebody with, you know, some ounce of decency isn't going to want to go through that. Uh, Biden, for his part, um, you know, his he's got a background that's somewhat sketchy also, maybe not nearly as much as Trump, but it's not entirely clear that he's firing on all cylinders. So right. <laughs> somehow we've gotten into this into this space where the the winners are are exactly the people we wouldn't want to be president on right. either side. Right. Yeah. We talked about that. My, my girl, Tulsi Gabbard, we talked about her before because she mm-hmm. the moment she kind of like struck down on Kamala Harris in that debate, you literally did not hear from her. She got like right. no airtime. And, and you're right. It looks like the people that would be great for this country that would lead that, you know, is a woman is diverse. She's Hawaiian. Um, she's a, you know, it, she was in the military. She served uh, as a medic. So she's seen some shit like, you know, and she has, I don't know about Hawaii's politics, whatever. Cause it's kind of like off on its own, but like, I don't know. And like Yang too, there's so many interesting characters, but you're right. It's almost like the system. If you don't have the DNC or the Democrat or the, the whatever the two parties, the, um, the acronyms are, if you don't have both of those backing you, there's, you don't have a shot in hell. Right. I, I can tell you um, my dream candidate and there's no way that she would run. I'm sure <laughs> is, is Condoleezza Rice. Uh, she's a PhD in economics. She's was secretary of state. She has tremendous uh, credential in credentials in Washington. She's black and a woman. Um, it's the ideal candidate if, right. uh, to appeal to everybody. Right. Can't imagine that she would want to run, though. Right. She went through it with Bush. She was in that administration, no? So she also yeah, has that correct. experience. Right. Um, yeah, I remember you guys saying that that would be your ideal. I, I was so confused of, has this ever happened before where, like, like because, for example, Tulsi Gabbard, she, she's kind of almost in the middle. She has a lot of left and a lot of right ideas, but she was Democratic. And I I don't know if this happens or if this can happen, but can't, like, a Republican just be like, hey, like, we're going to work, we're going to do this together. I have a Republican. Oh, yes. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And and that's happened before that you get a Republican and a Democrat on the same ticket. Wow. Yeah. It weirds everybody out, but it, it's happened. Has it ever won? Nothing wrong with it. Uh, Yeah. And I, James is the one to ask about that, but I believe that is the case. Right. Um, But I, I think one of the things that, that that's interesting about our politics is we tend to think in terms of Democrat and Republican, that those are the two sides. If you go by the numbers, most Americans are neither. Right. They're independent. Right. The Democrats, both the Democrats and the Republicans are minorities. It's the independents, right. they're a huge amount. And and so what happens is you get you get the politicians playing to those two extremes, the extreme left and the extreme right, and it leaves the, most of the country wondering who's representing them. Right. Yeah. And the independents don't have this machine that the Republicans no. and Democrat behind them either, as far as money and just, you know, those those huge. No, they, they don't. And, you know, there's the Libertarian Party that <laughs> on paper, it would be the party to fill that center because right. um, it the Libertarians tend to tend to agree with Republicans on economic matters. They tend to agree with Democrats on social matters. It's when I talk to people in, in the, about their politics and they'll say to me things like, well, I'm, I'm a Democrat except for the following things, or I'm a Republican except for the following things. 
they're describing libertarians. Libertarian, yeah. Right? But there's no way the, the libertarians can't get their own house in order um, right. in, until they grow up and become adults. There's right. no way that that party has any hope of, of winning an election. That's so true. I know. I love when I hear people say that. I'm like, you're literally describing a completely different party. You're not this and that. You're you're just this because right. you have multiple views of different things. Right. Crazy. Two more things and I'll let you go. Um, so one, let's talk about AOC real quick. So as an outsider looking in, she's to me, she's like loud. She's, she came from the Bronx. She was like, almost like the vote, you know, like a voter candidate type situation. Um, and now she's at the Met Gala. The ticket is averaging 30 grand. I know James is like, she didn't pay for that. I know she probably didn't pay for that, but still she's at a party that glorifies the rich and wealthiest people, you know, in Hollywood and entertainment. Mm -hmm. And she's wearing a dress that's probably costs a lot. I know it was made by a designer. It says tax the rich. Two things. One, give me your opinion on that. Uh, as a politician, why would you, you know, succumb to those things? And two, is it that easy? Can we just tax the rich? Yeah. So the first question actually is the harder one. <laughs> why is she doing that? Um, I think the thing, the thing to remember, so AOC is a representative in the U.S. House of Representatives, which means that when she gets on the news and you see her saying whatever it is she says or doing whatever she is she does, she's not talking to you and she's not talking to me. In fact, she's not talking to most of the people who are listening. She's talking to her constituency, which is this congressional district in New York. And I don't know what their attitudes are. They, you know, I, I can only guess that maybe a lot of them thought that she was flipping the bird to these rich people by doing what she did, and in which case they cheer her on and say, go for it. But you see both her, you see Bernie Sanders, who to our eyes look extreme. And we wonder how can such a politician persist being so extreme and we forget that those politicians aren't talking to us. They're mm. talking to their constituencies who, who presumably are different than the right. middle of the road. Who Americans. like those things that they're talking about. Right, right, right. right. So, so that's, the, that's the harder question. The easy question, can you tax the rich? No, there aren't enough of them. We could tax, we could tax the rich and forget about their income. Let's go whole hog. Let's take their entire wealth which first off is unconstitutional, but suppose we took it anyway, which we're not going to, but suppose we did and suppose that they could get full price on the assets that we take. So all of Jeff Bezos stock, he cashes it in and he gets $1 for every dollar's worth of stock and the IRS takes it, which that isn't gonna happen either because there's no way that if the rich cashed out their assets, they get anywhere near market value. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, let's take this extreme hypothetical case that we tax the rich, we tax all of their wealth, 100% of it, and they get we get full market value off of it. We will collect about $3 trillion. That's it? That's it. The federal Oof. budget this year, I believe, is six. <laughs> so we would fund, we would collect enough money to fund the federal government for, um, you six know, months. about six months, nine months, something like that. And let me walk back what I just said, because all of that I described was not the rich. It was specifically, specifically billionaires, mm -hmm. specifically billionaires. Um, but nonetheless, you throw in all the rest of the 1% and you do get a bigger number, but it's not that much bigger, right? right We're right. talking... I'd get take a guess five trillion maybe, but notice what you've done. If we did do that, you now no longer have the one percent. You no longer have billionaires. What are we going to do next year? Because we got to collect money again next year. So we turn to other people. 
And I think politicians have realized this. What, what they have realized is, or maybe they knew it already, they're now becoming bold enough that they could start to act on it, is that the middle class and the upper middle class actually have more income, about twice as much income as the 1%. Oh, collectively, all together. Collectively, collectively. I can, I can class, see that. The yeah. upper middle class have twice as much income. Because there's way more people. It, because, yes, what we, what we lack in income, we more than make up for in, in people. Right. And the middle class and the upper, upper middle class are taxed at relatively low rates at, at the federal level. The, the middle class is roughly around 13%. The upper middle class is roughly around 16% versus the 1% is at 32%. So politicians are seeing us as this great untapped resource hmm. and they're going to start coming for us because that's where the money is. Now <laughs> you start to see this in things like, um, president Biden's tax plan and president Biden was saying he and his supporters kept saying the same thing over and over again. This is a capital gains tax and it's a capital gains tax on the rich. If you look at the details, it turns out that although it is technically a capital gains tax, it acts and talks and walks exactly like a death tax, an estate tax. And furthermore, it's aimed, given the numbers, at the upper middle class. What's a death tax? So it's a death tax. It's an, it's, it's an estate tax. Now, there's there's all when people say things like, oh, my God, uh, you know, if you hit a farmer with this thing, he's going to owe all these taxes, he's going to have to close his farm. And so the Biden camp writes in, you know, little waivers saying, well, if you're a farmer, provided your children continue to run the farm, you can defer the tax, not that you're exempt from it. You can what? defer it until you stop farming, then you owe it. Whoa. And so, so if, if you defer it for 30 years, would you pay like, oh, a yeah, huge... you're just going to end up owing more, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. But, but what's happening here is this, this so-called capital gains tax on the rich, that's actually a death tax on, on the middle class. Um, what it's going to do, it's going to hit hard small business owners, farmers, of course, um, because if I, well, you've got a company, you're, you're, you do marketing, you have clients. Right. Now, you probably don't have lots of assets doing that, but you could imagine a, a bis small business like yours that did have lots of assets. Maybe it had some machinery, a, a building, whatever. It's very easy for a small business to be worth enough on paper to trigger that tax hmm. without generating income. Wow. I mean, not without, but without generating lots of income. So you can have, you know, let's say $2 million in assets and those $2 million in assets generate a decent middle-class income for you and for maybe a dozen employees. And that's it. So when you die and you leave that business to your kids under Joe Biden's plan, your kids owe tax on that immediately on the market value of those assets. Damn. And what are they going to have to do? You're, you're asking them to come up with $400,000 cash. What? They're going to have to sell off bits of the business. Wow. And so what does this do? This, this is a, it's, it's um, a stake in the heart of small businesses across the country. Uh, you know, I mean, you're fine until you die and leave it to your kids. And then, you know, it, it gets and hit with this tax. They come oh, and who benefits, yeah. who benefits, by the way, is the big corporations. Yeah, because no more small businesses. 
Right. But they don't, yeah, exactly. Right. They can now expand into that space that yeah, small no businesses have vacated. Right. right. Yeah. Wow. So, so anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that, um, yeah, you, you can't tax the rich because there aren't enough of them, given the voracious appetite the federal government has. Right. Furthermore, what there is enough of are the middle and upper classes, and that's where politicians are starting to turn their attention. That's scary for one. And two, can another administration come in and kill that at any time? Yes. Okay. So there's... Yes. But oh. here's, here's the maddening thing about the whole business. This, this, new, this tax that Joe Biden is proposing is a new type of tax that hasn't existed before. It's a lot harder. It's a much heavier lift to institute a new tax that hasn't existed before than it is to tweak an existing tax. Right. So if he is successful and he gets this new tax in place, yes, the next president who comes along could tweak it to knock it down. But the one who comes after is going to find it much easier to tweak it to put it back into existence than what Joe Biden is facing now trying to get the thing off the ground in the first place. Right. So he's setting up the future administrations on the left to make right. it even worse, potentially. Yeah. And, you, you know, we say on the left, but, you know, well, I would point the finger to blame the other direction as well, because right. given the option, the right would also like to get their hands on your tax revenue. Right. They just don't, aren't as loud about it. True. <laughs> That's true. And then as far as because. Uh, I always see, is this true that like Amazon, Microsoft, like big companies, they don't pay tax state, like to income tax at the end of the year or something like that? No, they, they pay, they pay tax. Now, Amazon has, Amazon has not paid tax for a couple of years, but the reason is not because it's not paying tax, but because of the way the tax code is written to give Amazon an incentive to invest in infrastructure, to build more buildings, to hire more people, to expand. The government said, okay, if you do that, you can take some tax breaks. Mm. So that's what Amazon did. And, and so on the one hand, you've got politicians saying, well, Amazon, you aren't paying taxes. This is wrong. When in fact, they're playing by the rules that the same politicians put in place that would encourage Amazon to do what Amazon actually did a couple of years ago and open two new 50,000 person offices in the mm -hmm. country. Yep. Yeah. I, 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 I'm glad you cleared that up because that's, what I see on the news and stuff. It's like Bezos is on this, you know, hundred million dollar yacht and he's not paying taxes. But to your point, if they have these incentives to, to grow the infrastructure and create more jobs, which they 100% have. Right. No question. I think that makes, that makes sense. And I think that's fair. Um, I mean, he's just going to make him rich. Eventually he'll have to pay. Will he have to pay the taxes that he didn't pay in those years eventually? Uh, yeah, so we have to make a distinction between Bezos and Amazon. So that's two different animals. I don't uh, know what Bezos' tax situation is right now. We're, all this stuff I'm talking about is Amazon's tax situation. Okay. And once they're once they've exhausted these credits, which I think they exhausted them last year, mm. they go back to paying taxes as usual. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Now, something that's worth mentioning here because uh, politicians love to do this, of talk about taxing the corporations, and we all cheer and we say, "Yeah, tax those evil corporations." The thing we have to remember is corporations never pay taxes. They only collect them. So every dollar that Amazon pays in tax is going to come from one of several places. It's either going to come from uh, its customers in the form of higher prices. It's going to come from its workers in the form of reduced wages. It's going to come from its stockholders in the form of lesser dividends. It's going to come from its suppliers in the form of lesser payments. But the fact is, Amazon is simply any corporation is simply a pass through. So when politicians 
talk a lot about taxing corporations. What they are knowingly doing is getting voters on board with paying more taxes themselves. Right. It's just that the voters don't realize that. Right. Damn, man. God, see, this is why I love talking to you and why I hate talking to you because it makes sense of <laughs> stuff that, that pisses me off. All right. Well, hey, man, I, I think we covered a lot of shit today. Um, I really appreciate you coming on as always. Um, learned a lot. I know listeners and watchers are going to learn a lot. I'm sure there'll be some crazy stuff going on in the comments, which James is like, don't read the comments, but I can't. I'm a millennial. I have to. I know. People. I'm the same way. I have to read them. Yeah, I know. That's what he said. He's like, he's like, Anthony reads the comments. I'm like, it's. I have to. I have to know what these people are saying. But anyway, um, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Corey, thank you. This has been great. Absolutely. And that's another episode for the E4 Exclusive Podcast. And we'll see you next time. Get 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code EXPLICIT20 at manscaped.com. That's right. 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code EXPLICIT20 at manscaped.com. Unlock that confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped.